And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome E.A. Bars to the program today. E.A. Bars is a pseudonym of the crime fiction writer E.A. Amar, who is also known as Ed. As E.A. Amar, he's published the novels The Unrepentant, I'll Sleep When You're Dead, and You're As Good As Dead, as well as contributed to several anthologies. He has taken on the pseudonym E.A. Bars to publish They're Gone, which is available from Crooked Lane Books. And as their gun opens up, a woman named Deb wakes up to sirens outside her home. And sirens in the middle of the night just might as well be banshee whales, shouldn't they? <laughs> it, it's very much uh, crime fiction fodder. <laughs> so the sirens come and Deb has a daughter in college. And her first assumption is that something happened to her child. And she turns to her husband's side of the bed and realizes that he's not there. And so it's the police that are coming to talk to her. Correct. They come and they tell her that he's been killed. And for her, the grief is rather heavy, right? I mean, it would be for most people, but this book's told through the point of view of two characters. And the second reacts markedly differently. For Deb, this was, her life was very set and happy and controlled. And this throws everything for her into an emotional and physical turmoil. Her husband was killed, and by killed, we mean murdered. Right. She finds out that he was shot, and the assumption is that it was nothing but an ATM robbery, which isn't a nothing, but (laughs) the assumption is, you know, just a standard ATM robbery turned deadly, (laughs) as as you do. (laughs) And there are a lot of assumptions that Deb has made over the course of her adult life, and it seems a lot of those assumptions are going to fall by the wayside as the course of the story goes along. Yeah, and that was something that I I really wanted to explore. One of the things that I'm most interested in as a writer and, and as a person is the theme of authority. And I don't question authority nearly as much as I wish. <laughs> I I'm, I'm way too passive and timid. But what I find fascinating are the underlying truths that we accept as people and how those tend to fall by the wayside or become questioned or we realize are artificial as we age. And for Deb, her life was built on assumption, as all of our lives are, and she finds out that some of those were, in fact, fraudulent. So what do you think is behind your kind of acquiescence to authority? For me, it's not so much, I think, a meekness <laughs> as it is a compromise. One of the things is I have a day job. My day job's in marketing, and I work with a lot of vendors, and you know, when, when something goes wrong, my inclination is, you know, you have a talk with them, you have an argument, and I would rather just not continue to work with that person. It's not so much a, a walking away from confrontation or authority as it is looking for an alternate solution. So do you think that your writing about crime and violent topics like this kind of helps you work through that avoidance of the conflict in your day job? A little bit. I, you know, one of the things that I try to do with, with my writing is I feel a lot of times like I'm writing against something. You know, there's the sense of a male antihero that's become very prevalent in crime fiction. And he's very assertive and dominant and probably a bit psychopathic, but 
gosh darn it, he's killing the bad guys. (laughs) (laughs) So that's okay. And I like that trope. I don't have anything against the writers who do it well, but I think it's a bit artificial and it's not necessarily the kind of thing I want to write about. You know, I, I prefer characters who are overwhelmed who are in over their heads in a situation. And there are people who navigate those waters, but I want to paint the other side too. You know, the the people who have to find courage, not the people who have an innate ability for it. But we will meet one of those characters later on in the course of the story. Right. And much of this has to do with how violence is portrayed, right? As a male crime fiction writer, my peers, other male crime fiction writers, I think a lot of times we differ on violence and how we use it. I'm not opposed anyway to cartoonish violence, bloodless violence, like an Indiana Jones movie, or for that matter, gratuitous violence, if it's well done. None of that bothers me. But the way that I want to depict violence is as a scarring, monumental moment for people, you know, something that is a defining part of their life. And if I have characters, and I do in this book, who traffic in that, then I don't want them to necessarily be heroic. And definitely, life, you don't have a Foley artist there crunching the celery when you're getting punched in the face or something like that. Real-life violence is horrific, but very unsensationalized. Right? I'm somebody who, to an extent, I enjoy violence. You know, I studied martial arts. So real violence, too, just not fictionalized violence in books and films. When I was in high school and when I was in a little bit in college, I, I wrestled. And I loved it. And then, you know, you get as... You do when you're a kid, you get into a few fights. And I remember wondering at that time about the difference, you know, why I liked so much, you know, on one end, you know, fighting somebody and on the other end, finding a real fight so disconcerting. And part of that is because, you know, real violence has no boundary. The goal of violence is death. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. You know, I I like rules with that. I like, I, I, like, I like it to be contained. So in your personal life, any fighting that you've had, whether it be regulated or, or unregulated, were any of your opponents there tougher than the blank page when you sit down to write? Oh yeah, much tougher. I would much, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, most people would say the opposite, but yeah, no, those guys were definitely a lot. I mean, they hurt a lot more. You know, it's one thing to puzzle over a plot point or a character. If something in one chapter makes sense, you know, 20 chapters later, I'd much rather do that than get punched in the face. I'm choosing to, to struggle with a book, you know, and, and I, I enjoy it. I mean, at the end of the day, writing, it's something that for me, becoming a, a published professional writer was a long haul. It took a long time. I'm constantly grateful to have my books in, in stores. I wouldn't feel that way about the opportunity to get beat up every week or so. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Henry Rollins, who's originally from the DC area as well, punk rock mm-hmm. singer and actor and spoken word artist, talked about how when he hit 40 or so, when he started to see young men in the street, he would say, oh, these people would kill me. I'm not as tough as I used to be when I was young. It's it's passed me by. Yeah, it does, man. I mean, I'm uh, in my mid 40s right now. And man, I have a seven-year-old son. And the stuff I have to do with him just, 
like, oh, you're going to kill me, man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do? You want to run across the yard? I can't do that anymore. <laughs> All of my games and involve, you know, some form of sitting. <laughs> Knees are cruel, aren't they? Oh, gosh, it's the worst. Gravity is just so unfair. <laughs> so turning back to the story, Deb and her late husband, now Grant, live in Northern Virginia. What are the suburbs of Northern Virginia outside of D.C. like? I've lived in Northern Virginia for almost 30 years now, and I was a military brat growing up. So Northern Virginia still feels like a temporary place to me, although it's the place I'm planning to live the next 20 or 30 years of my life. So the majority of my life will be spent here. I wish should probably have a greater fondness for the area. I like it. It's nice. It's it's a great place to live in a lot of ways. When my wife and I thought about moving, we looked at a map and we couldn't find anything in the States that has what this area offers, which is terrific schools. The services here are terrific. The job market in this area is relatively safe because we're so connected to the federal government. So even during the recessions that we've gone through, this area tends to be a bit bulletproof. The writing community here is fantastic. You know, the the crime fiction community in the D.C., Maryland, Northern Virginia, and Western Maryland triangle is really supportive. It's very large. The readers here are really enthused and supportive. And the area is incredibly diverse. I was born in Panama. My dad's white. My mom's Panamanian. My wife's Vietnamese. So my son is a mix. I'm mixed, but my son is, you know, mixed and then some. And this area, he does not stick out. I always stuck out growing up. I was always the only mixed kid, you know, in in my class. And it was isolating. To have my son not have to experience that, to have him name his friends and the names are, you know, from all around the world and him to say them naturally without realizing that this is a bit of an unusual gift, you know, it's wonderful. Those aspects of your real life are inside the story as well. Deb is Vietnamese by birth, adopted by an American woman, a single mother, and she has felt that otherness, especially when she grew up in Southern Virginia. I moved here for college, and when I started college, I still felt somewhat estranged. And I think it was a product of my age. I don't think I would have experienced it earlier, but this was the first place where I experienced the real heat of racism. This is the first place that someone called me the N-word, I guess mistakenly, but still, (laughs) men punched me. This is the place where I, I was in conversations where racist terms were just offhandedly, casually used. You know, that was in the early 90s, and that was also with a a very different group of people. You know, I talk about the diversity here and and how it's changing. Well, I talk about the diversity, but what I mean by that, too, is that it's changing, that the makeup of interracial and mixed couples is growing, and it's not a remarkable thing here. And, you know, I've lived a lot of places. I I know that's not a national thing. I know it's localized, but I wanted Deb very much to to have experienced both. She wasn't born into privilege, but she seems to have taken to the suburban middle class, often identified with white folks pretty strongly. Yeah, and I think that's you know something that I've noticed here, and it's something that I've written about, and, and something that, that I've experienced. I was a bit embarrassed of it, and I always found it isolating. I was, to an extent, raised white, and that happens to a lot of kids who 
are mixed. I didn't know that. I didn't know that was something that's not uncommon until I joined an organization called Crime Writers of Color, which was founded a couple of years ago by Walter Mosley and Kelly Garrett and Gigi Pandion and Alex Segura. They invited me to join, and I did, and I met other mixed writers who had told me that this was you know, something that was common with, and there was really never a place where you're fully accepted. And I was like, I didn't know other people went through that. You know, I thought it was just me, you know, where you become part of a culture and you accept that, but you're not quite sure how you feel about it and you don't fully belong. But I think, you know, when you're in at least these Northern Virginia suburbs, not suburbs everywhere, of course, but these suburbs, culturally, they're white. They have a lot of advantages to being here and they are diversifying, but you're being raised in relatively a white cultural lifestyle. Were you able to keep in contact with any bit of your Panamanian heritage while growing up in America? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My Spanish is awful. And it's, <laughs> and I'm working on it. I, I am trying my hardest because half my family is in Panama and I you know, have to talk to them through like my cousin as a translator. And it really irks me. But I've gone to Panama every few years and spent time there and hung out with my family. And I absolutely dead set on making that a part of my son's experience. When he gets older, I want him to just offhandedly say, oh yeah, we've Went to Panama every couple of years, you know, as a part of my life, part of my upbringing, one I'm intimately familiar with. Have you all had a chance to go to Vietnam? No. So kind of like Deb, my wife was adopted as a baby out of Saigon. So she was never really in the country with any kind of consciousness. We'd like to go back. We'd like to go there and see it and get an understanding of it, but we haven't had a chance to. I hear it's a long flight, so... (laughs) And the parking is terrible. Right, yeah. (laughs) You mentioned we have two main point-of-view characters. The other one is Ceci Castillo. And while Deb is at home when she receives the bad news, bad news comes to Ceci while she's at work. Yeah, so Ceci's a Baltimore bartender, and she's working at a bit of a, you know, kind of a pseudo dive bar in Baltimore in a neighborhood called Fells Point. And two cops come in and tell her, what's happened to her husband. And she is not grief-stricken. Her husband, Hector, was abusive. So she is, after the shock and a flash of grief kind of pass over her, she feels rather celebratory. She's also been drinking. so And she doesn't exactly <laughs> grieve Hector in a conventional way. She feels pretty good about it. And that was something that, for me, I... I struggled with that. That chapter was a tough one. And I rewrote it a lot because to me, Ceci kept coming off as trite. And I never, never want to treat murder as trite. On the other hand, I wanted to be honest in her emotions to Hector and what I thought those emotions would be. You know, I, I didn't want her to accept him, but I thought she should still remark on the significance that he had to her. And there's also the element of I'm a man writing from the perspective of two female characters. And one of those characters was in an abusive relationship. It's an experience that I I was moved to write about, but not one that I dared appropriate. What was it like for you writing across gender? You know, my book prior to this one, The Unrepentant, was a book that dealt with the realities of sex trafficking and the uh, violence, 
physical and emotional that causes people. And I did a lot of research into that topic. And when I did that research, one of the things that became increasingly hard, and look, I'm a man and I love being a man. It's great. The, <laughs> the low bar that I have is terrific. <laughs> it's nothing else. I'm in sweatpants and no one's complaining. No one's <laughs> like, hey, you should, you know, <laughs> you, you should put on some makeup or something. No one, no one says that. It's a wonderful existence. You know, it, it became very hard for me to see men as heroic because in all of the research I did and all of the stuff, the men were always the perpetrators particularly with violent crimes, with sex crimes. And I wanted to write about women, you know, as heroic roles. I didn't want to make them masculine. You know, I didn't want them to have reactions that I think a conventional male hero would have. I wanted to, to try and be honest with them. And as I mentioned, I'm very aware culturally of appropriation as a writer and, and also just getting something wrong. One of the things that I'm, where I'm very fortunate is the early readers of my work and my agent and my editor are all very strong, very outspoken women who have zero regard when it comes to calling me out on my errors. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. I want that. One of the best comments I can receive when I'm looking through an, an editing letter or, or notes in the manuscript is a little comment that says, I don't think I would do this. That means so much to me. You know, it's so insightful. I don't want to, to get something wrong. Now, as the book has gotten a wider readership, what has the response been from women readers? It's been positive. Again, that means a lot to me. You know, it's not quite, I can't believe you're a guy writing this kind of response, but there's no sense of you got something completely wrong either. It's more um, a very heartfelt thank you for taking this on. That means a lot to me. I really, it's nice to get any kind of positive feedback, of course, but that feedback in particular means a lot to me. Of course, I don't go on Goodreads because I'm not sadistic. So <laughs> maybe on Goodreads, I'm getting torn apart. I have no idea. But <laughs> the emails that come to me and it's on social media, otherwise it's been really positive. I bet that's a relief. <laughs> Sessi learns from the police that there's been a rash of murders of men along the lines that, that Hector was a victim of. Right. And there's a thread through the beginning of the book that they think that it's some lone female serial killer who's doing this. There's other assumptions. And some of that was as just a writer's technique as different red herrings and threads to lead the reader on. And I find that increasingly difficult. As the book goes forward, one of the things that I, I always have to point out when you write crime fiction, people always think you read and write mysteries. And I flatly do not because it is very difficult. And I, I think it would be so complicated to write a mystery that has the kind of you know intricate plot and one that's foolproof at that. I find them you know, a bit taxing to read at times and, and not the kind of thing I want to write. I, I was very surprised when the trade reviews came in and they were complimentary of the plotting because, you know, as writers have their strengths and weaknesses, plotting is something that I don't think I'm bad at, but I don't necessarily pride myself on. When they pointed out that the plot was intricate, I was pleased, but surprised. Well, congratulations. 
I, I know. I, I was. I think part of it is, and I, I view this as a bit of a cheat, is writing from two co-protagonists who aren't connected and then connecting them seems complicated from the outside. And it was actually seemed like an easier way to tell a story. In a way, like I mentioned, I, I think it was perhaps a cheat, but it sort of inherently complicates the story without me realizing it. Because if you just have one point of view character, then there's like the fog of war. There are so many things they're not privy to that right. also affect the reader. And, and writing other characters is is always kind of funny. You know, I, I think as a writer, it you know, it, it's like finding a whole new paint set to play with. Ceci and Deb are very different from each other. And while Ceci would be affected by racism against toward Latinos in America, her concerns are more prosaic and everyday economic concerns generally, as opposed to more detecting those societal slights that Deb has been victim of. Right. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the biggest reason is Deb has a daughter. And the books sort of mirror my own life and how I... uh, I love, you know, I, I didn't realize this. A reader pointed this out to me. The Unrepentant was a, a book about sex trafficking and a, a woman escapes a group of criminals with the help of a man that she later ends up saving repeatedly. But that book, I didn't know this as I was writing it, but it was very much about taking responsibility for someone, you know, and at that point, you know, my son was, I don't know, maybe four or five when I was writing it. So, I, you know, I was just starting to like him. Um, <laughs> no, I liked him, but you know, it was, it, it was well, yeah, sort you, of, you always loved him, but until they get a personality, you don't know if you're going to like them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but the, with they're gone, the book, you know, it involves immediately these men being taken away and, you know, it kind of came from my fear of, you know, leaving my family, leaving this unit that I just so dearly love. You know, I'm also, like I said, I'm in my mid-40s, and that's normally a point where I, I think a lot of men tend to regard their mortality. <laughs> and and we think like, oh my gosh, if, if we left, what would happen to the world? You know, so, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, that, that was part of what would inform this book. So for Deb, the problems that she's dealing with and what she sees differently than Ceci are informed a lot by having a daughter who she's concerned for and watching out for and is concerned that what she knows of the world, the bad elements, will affect her daughter later. Now, Ceci, with Hector being physically abusive, he still is a problem to her even after he dies. He's the gift that keeps on giving in the negative way. Yeah, you know, and and he's going to linger, right? It's two ways. It's the sort of the PTSD that she would experience manifesting into a physical way. And Ceci finds out plot-wise that he was involved with some terrible people and she owes them money. So for her, she's dragged into that world and sort of finds herself targeted by it. A little ways into the book, while she's in the process of grieving, an FBI agent named Levy Price visits Deb and further continues to turn her world upside down. Yeah, so Levy informs Deb about some of her husband's activities and lets her know that he was looking into him. And for Deb, this becomes very disconcerting. And without, as a spoiler, it's fine. You know, she finds out that her husband was consorting with sex workers. 
and it destroys her. It deepens her grief and, and confuses, it complicates it with anger and betrayal. And the levy is sort of introduced kind of, I, I don't think in the beginning as a potential love interest, but that's hinted at. And he's a bit of an odd duck. Yeah, you know, it, one of the things that I've, I've had the fortune of uh, as a crime fiction writer is you meet a lot of former people in law enforcement, you know, who have become writers. A good friend of mine was a former cop and a Secret Service agent. Yeah, I know a, a couple of people who worked for the FBI, and they always strike me as odd ducks. <laughs> so I don't mean to say that, you know, Levy's reflective of them, but I don't see them as the straightway stern authority figure that they're often painted as. I did appreciate you including the pronunciation for his name. It's spelled like Levi, but it's pronounced Levy. And Deb's name, Lean, uh, instead of Lynn. I wish all writers were so courteous to, to give pronunciations of names that are non-common in American usage. You know what's really funny about that is when I wrote this book and through edits and everything until it got published and I heard the audio version, I always pronounced Ceci Kessie. Really? <laughs> I always was like Kessie Castillo. And the audio book narrator read her name as Ceci Castillo. And I was like, well, it's Cecilia. So yeah, it's Ceci. She's right. And I was like, oh. Before that, when I did interviews, I would talk about her and people were like, wait, you mean Ceci? And I was like, oh, no, no, you've got it completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that, you, you missed one there. Hey, completely. Yeah, totally. It was everyone's right and I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Names are important and you are writing under a different name now than on your previous novels. What brought about the change to EA Barr? There were two reasons. Uh, the first is, you know, I mentioned The Unrepentant, and I've been fortunate that I've received good reviews in my sort of early writing career. But The Unrepentant came with good reviews, but also warnings. Like, you know, this book's very violent. Like, I always think of it as a drug commercial where they're like, you know, <laughs> side effects may include um, <laughs> violence and abuse and trauma. And with they're gone. I wanted to write something that was, you know, nakedly a commercial book club type book. I still wanted to write something that was me. I, I wanted to write something that felt like a book that I was proud of and that I liked that only I could have written, but I wanted something different. And writing under her name helped give me that bit of distance. And is it pronounced bar or is it a different way? I mean, I'm probably wrong about that too, but <laughs> I say, I just say bars. And uh, the pronunciation of your other name, is it Imar or Amar? It's Amar, but everybody always says Imar, and I'm starting to think that my family has been wrong for decades. <laughs> <laughs> because everybody I meet says Imar, and I'm like, no, no, it's Amar. And I'm like, well. So is your, is your father, what's his family's heritage? Years and years in Nevada. So I don't know. I don't know where they trace their roots before that, I, I think there may be there may be some German in there, but the furthest back they've gone has always just been deeper in Nevada. Well, that makes sense since Nevada pronounces its own name wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the Germans would pronounce it Imar if that were the case. Hmm. And uh, but yeah, Nevada. Why did they say Nevada? <laughs> Friends of mine were visiting Turkey, and they said. There are tons of 
well, they said IMARS here, A-Y-M-A-R. And I was like, really? Maybe there's something there too. I, I had no idea, but apparently it's, a, it's a, not an uncommon name in Turkey. Maybe have some Turkish blood in you as well. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I should probably do one of those DNA things. <laughs> oh, the fun thing about one of those DNA things, every once in a while I get an update and they'll say, yeah, something we said before that wasn't right. Here's, here's what we mean now. Every six months or so, they, they subtly tweak what my percentages are from. <laughs> I go, wait a second. I'm this? Oh, no, I'm not. You know, we did one for my wife because she's adopted. And, you know, within like a week, they were like, we found, you know, a number of cousins. And we were like, oh, my gosh, that's that's fantastic because she's never tried to find her biological family. And we were like, wow, this is amazing. And then every week we kept getting, and here are some other potential cousins who are like, you know, six degrees removed or whatever. And we eventually unsubscribed from those emails. I, I don't <laughs> want to find out that we're related is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> He's going with the ignorance plan. <laughs> For this, yes. <laughs> Since we've been in this pandemic lockdown lifestyle for the almost a year now, are you working on any writing that includes the reality of the pandemic in part of the storyline? I was. All of my friends who, who are writers were not. They were all like, we're going to ignore it. We're writing books set either, you know, a couple of years ago or a couple of years after. And I thought, you know, one thing I want to do is I, I want to write about this area. I want to write about how it's been affected and how it's, it's changed. And I did a couple of book clubs and I asked readers, like, do you want to read about the pandemic? And they all said uniformly, you know, hell no. <laughs> no we, we do not. We have zero interest in reliving this. And, and I understand that. And I decided instead to change what I was writing and remove it from that. I, I mean, I still want to have it there. You know, it still factors in, but it's the kind of thing that was in, in, in the one I'm writing now that factors in the past. I understand that. You know, I, I have a urge to write about these things. Like I was here, you know, in 9-11. My dad was at the Pentagon and he, he lived. But you know, he was there when the plane hit. We were down the street from somebody who was shot by the Beltway sniper. My wife, her company was taken hostage. Coworkers were taken hostage in the downstairs while she was upstairs. Like we've seen a lot of violence here. My a bullet went through my son's daycare window. But I'm saying North Virginia has a lot of great things about living here. But aside from that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm always moved to write about these things. I wouldn't write something I didn't feel I could do justice to, but there is a grace in removal. Writing about 9-11, I would never want to write a journal of that day. I would much rather write about how I did in, in There Gone, where Deb is at a restaurant, you know, in Crystal City that overlooks the airport, and she goes to the memories of what that day was like for her. I think that's the same way for me to approach the pandemic. as something that was monumental and life-altering, but sort of as a memory. We're going to have to deal with it at some point because, you know, not only has it changed the practical way that we live, but I'm sure the psychological impact that's having on all of us is, is pretty intense and is going to be worthy of investigation. I think so, too. I mean, the pandemic is is terrible. There's no glossing that over. But if there's lessons or things that you can pull from it or, or things that change in your life for the better, I mean... You know, I was very frustrated like a, a year and a half ago about how little I saw my son. You know, I hated it. I hated the infrequency of it during the week. And now, 
I'm working from home for my day job. He's in person in school. I, I see him, you know, in the early afternoon. And it's fantastic. You know, I'm grateful that I had this time, but I'm not sure I'm willing to lose it. Psychologically, it's introduced some things that are going to be burdensome, but it's a very human thing to try and find, you know, some kind of strength that you or some kind of gift that you got from a situation. I like what I'm writing now and I'm excited about it. And I'm in that, I guess it's a zone that is is a very cool place to be when you're writing. This is going to sound so dumb. <laughs> I'm aware of that. But I get so worried about dying right now. Not pandemic-wise. I mean, this happens to me when I'm writing something and, I, and I'm excited about it. I don't want to stop. I don't want this to end up in my computer somewhere forgotten. I'm so excited by the story and where it's going and all my free time's devoted to it. I know, I know it's not the best thing ever written, but it's the best thing I've ever written. For me, that's a lovely place to be in. And it's not a common place, right? It's not some place you frequently visit, but it's a rush. Do you have an idea when we might be able to read it? I tend to take about a year and a half, it seems, with books. And I'm I'm hoping that it'll be ready for my agent by May. And, you know, it'd probably be out by uh, fall 2022 would be my optimistic guess. <laughs> <laughs> and will that be with EA Bars or Amar? I don't know, man. I mean, maybe a third name. Who knows? <laughs> I like, I like bars. I, I think that's kind of cool. I, I, I write under AMR too. Anything to make it harder for people to track down my books. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who needs success anyway? I like the elusiveness. <laughs> well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for joining me today for book talk. It's been a pleasure and a, and a lot of fun as well. Oh, I really appreciate it. Uh, this was great. I um, am honored to join your lineup. So thank you so much for having me. E.A. Bars is the author of They're Gone, which is published by Crooked Lane Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced by Stephen Ussery and is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com. Any retransmission or reproduction without the express written consent of FM 89.3 WIPL of the Memphis Public Library and Information Center, a department of the City of Memphis, is strictly prohibited.